Hi guys, welcome back and thank you for joining us for this new episode of the True Crime Sisters podcast. I just thought I would mention for those of you who are interested, we actually have our new Patreon page up and running now and we're going to be releasing our first episode tomorrow. We've just recorded that and it's actually a bit of fun to sort of go off script and do our own thing. So if you want to check that out, head over to our True Crime Sisters Patreon page. Today we're looking at a case from New Zealand. So as usual, just please excuse any mispronunciations. We have done our best with that. And with that, I'll hand you over to Bill to tell you about this week's case. According to Nicola Cruikshank, she had a fairly normal and largely uneventful early life. This all changed when she was 14 years of age. A friend of her family coaxed her into his bedroom and raped her, turning her life as she knew it upside down. She had been at this family friend's house helping him clean before his wife arrived home from the hospital with their new baby. After the rape, she did everything she was supposed to. She went straight to the police and reported her ordeal. The man was charged and Nicola gave evidence against him in court. Unfortunately, despite her best efforts to seek justice against her attacker, he was acquitted of her rape. Following this extremely traumatic event... Nicola turned to drugs for comfort and to escape the pain that she was suffering every day. She felt extremely let down by the system that was supposed to protect her. She started self-medicating by smoking marijuana and when that no longer dulled the pain, she turned to harder drugs. Her father stood by her side, desperately trying to pull her out of the dark spiral she was descending into, but there was only so much he could do. Nicola trained briefly to become a jockey, with her father even finding her a job in the industry. But it wasn't long before the lure of drugs pulled her in again, and she moved away and began using drugs intravenously. Along with the drug use came interactions with dangerous people. One man that she was dating even held a gun to her head when she didn't do what he wanted. Nicola learnt from an early age that she had to earn her keep if she wanted to continue to be provided with drugs. She began earning money as a teenage sex worker. In her mind, her body had already been used and abused, so why not get paid for it? At just 17 years of age, Nicola fell pregnant and had a little boy named Harley. Harley was the result of a quick fling Nicola had with a married man, And although Nicola longed to provide a good life for him, it was only a matter of time before she got involved with a gang and resumed her drug taking. A couple of years later, at just 20 years of age, she fell pregnant again, this time to a member of the gang that she was hanging out with. She wasn't sure whether she was ready to be a mum again, but she also didn't believe in abortion. She strongly considered the possibility of putting her baby up for adoption once he or she was born. She even investigated possible families that were willing to take the baby on and provide a better life for he or she than Nicola could. Then, on the 5th of May, 1990, at 2.45pm in Gore, New Zealand, a little baby girl was born. Nicola held a mirror so she could watch her baby enter the world, allowing herself some control over the situation. The baby was seven pounds and nine ounces with very blonde hair and blue eyes and Nicola instantly fell in love. For 10 days, Nicola wrote potential names down, slowly eliminating them one by one until only one remained, Amber Lee. 
A couple of months after Amberlee's birth, Nicola met a man named James Gill and the two began a relationship. It wasn't perfect, but James loved Nicola and more importantly, her kids. The pair bought a house in a Tautau Southland where drugs continued to be a large part of their life. As months passed, Amberlee's personality began to shine through. She was bubbly, happy and loved to chat. She constantly had a smile on her face and absolutely loved her big brother Harley, following him everywhere he went, as younger siblings often do. Amber Lee had rosy red cheeks. She loved to wear her hair in little pigtails and pick out her own clothes. She was very girly. If she knew you, she was very social, but she could be a little shy if she didn't know somebody. Sadly, her happy demeanour was often overshadowed by her parents' addiction to drugs, and Nicola openly admits that she was a junkie for most of Amber Lee's life. She continued to earn money and drugs by doing sex work and spent a lot of time with members of gangs, who were obviously not the best influence for children to be around. Nicola became pregnant again, this time with James as the father, and they had a third child, a son who they named Danny. After many years of turmoil, drugs and gangs, Nicola and James decided that it was time to pack up their little family and move away so that they could make a fresh start and raise the kids properly. They left Harley with a family friend so that he could finish off his school term and reportedly join them later on the West Coast where they were planning on moving. It was the 17th of October 1992 when they set off in a house bus to start their new lives. The couple decided they would drop into James's friend's house on their way to their destination. It would be a good opportunity to catch up with a friend and have a bit of a break from the drive. The trip to James's friend, Richard Dett's house in Kingston, took around 80 minutes with a stop in Mossburn for an ice cream and a leg stretch. When they were around 15 minutes from Kingston, near Gaston, a bike that was strapped to the back of the bus smashed through the back window. James and Nicola didn't notice this until they arrived at their destination. The couple decided that they would have to get this window fixed before they could continue on on their journey, not knowing that this last-minute decision would change their lives forever. Richard Dett and his wife, Belinda Sayer, lived in a simple wooden home in Kingston, which was located 50 metres from Lake Wakatipu. Kingston is a small town on the South Island of New Zealand, 47 kilometres south of beautiful Queenstown, which is a popular resort town on the South Island of New Zealand. Nicola and James pulled up to the Kingston property and parked the bus on a grass verge opposite the house. The kids were both sleeping when they arrived, so they took them straight inside to continue their naps. It was a beautiful spring day and there were plenty of people out and about enjoying it. There were people out on the water fishing, boating and water skiing. When Amber Lee woke up, Nicola thought it would be nice to take her down to the lake for a bit of a paddle. She knew that Amber Lee hated water, so it was no surprise that she was not keen to get in. However, Amber was excited to go for a boat ride. She enjoyed the water from the safety of her mum's lap. There was something about being on the water, but not in it, that little Amber Lee loved. That would be a memory that Nicola would later hold on to. 
After their boat ride, it was decided that there would be a barbecue set up out the front where Nicola and James could get to know some of the locals and have a bit of a laugh and chat while the kids ran around and played. After they had some food and enjoyed the afternoon, James and his friend Richard Dett went to have a look at the broken window to see if they could fix it. Dett's wife, Belinda Sayer, left the property to go to a friend's house to do some laundry. And as she left, she saw little Amber Lee standing next to the driveway. At the time, she didn't know that she was going to be the last known person that would see the little girl. Richard and Belinda were growing poppies at the back of their property for opiate use. And as the day wore on, it was decided that before their fresh start, they would have one more big night. Nicola was nominated to go out the back into the bush and bleed the poppies to extract the opiate from them so the group could get high. This task was more difficult than Nicola had anticipated, and she was out there for 30 to 45 minutes, thinking that James was watching Amber Lee, while at the same time James thought that she was. At some point during her poppy bleeding expedition, Nicola thought that she heard the sound of a little girl some distance away up the path. She stopped what she was doing, stood up and called out to see if anybody was there, but nobody responded. She brushed the sound off and kept going before James approached to see how she was getting on. It was at this point that the couple realised that the other was not watching Amber Lee, with James stating that he thought she might be in front of the TV. Nicola ran inside and began to panic when she saw that Amber Lee was not in front of the TV. She began frantically running around the house, calling out for her daughter, even knocking on neighbours' doors to see if they had seen her. James, Nicola and their friends checked all the local areas that they could think of until approximately 9.12pm when they decided it was time to call the police. They dialed 111, which is the phone number for New Zealand's emergency services. Police attended and assisted in the search for the little girl before calling the search off for the night to resume the next morning when it was light again. At 8am the following day, a search was coordinated which included police, kayakers out on the lake, tracking dogs, police divers and a police helicopter. Between Amber's parents and family friends and the police and searchers, every inch of the small town was searched from top to bottom. It was initially assumed that Amber Lee must have fallen into the lake or a stream, but an intensive search of the lake would reveal that this was unlikely. Police divers scoured through the lake around 80 metres out and to a depth of about 15 metres. The search of the lake was extremely methodical, with divers doing a specific dive pattern which would allow them to examine every inch of the lake. Visibility was so good in the water that they were able to see everything on the floor of the lake, so it was extremely unlikely that they missed Amber Lee. This became even more unlikely as time passed, because if Amber was in the water, over time, her body most likely would have floated to the surface. Extensive ground searches went through the bush surrounding Kingston and focused intensely on old abandoned mine shafts. The first detective to lead the investigation into Amberley's disappearance was Warwick Walker, and his first thoughts when he arrived in Kingston were that Amberley had either wandered off or fallen into the lake. In the first few days of searching, all of the residents in the area were checked extensively, in case Amberley had accidentally wandered into a yard or under a veranda. 
A lot of the houses in Kingston were holiday houses, so some of them were unoccupied at the time. Obviously, the scenario of Amber Lee wandering off was a much more likely scenario than the child meeting with foul play. However, after a few weeks with no development in the case, he began to realise that there was a very real possibility that Amber Lee had indeed been abducted. The group who were at the Kingston house when Amber Lee disappeared were all people with a drug history and therefore known to police, so looking into them was the next logical step in the investigation. Warwick Walker's first impression of Nicola and James was that they were very upset, but at the same time guarded and standoffish, which was understandable given their past interactions with police as a result of their drug associations. After the initial searches, Walker was confident that Amber Lee had not wandered into a nearby property as every single house, cupboard, attic and yard had been searched from top to bottom. Following the initial police investigation, Nicola and James stayed in Kingston for an additional three months, searching every single day and following every single lead, no matter how crazy, looking for little Amber Lee. Police were certain that she wasn't in the lake by this stage, which meant that the most likely scenario had changed to that she had been abducted and most likely murdered. The majority of murders in New Zealand are perpetrated by somebody known to the victim, so this was the next option for police investigating the case. As we've mentioned, Kingston is a very small town, so police believed it was highly unlikely that an offender was passing through at the exact moment that Amberley was unsupervised. But as we know from other cases we've covered on the podcast, for example, Daniel Morecambe or Cherie Beasley, opportunistic predators do exist. If it was a stranger abduction, it was extremely high risk because there were enough people around that someone could easily have seen an abduction. Nobody ever reported seeing anyone that shouldn't have been there hanging around in the area. Of course, Nicola and James were looked at as potential suspects and have remained people of interest despite police being confident that they are not involved. The general public were hard on Nicola in particular because of her drug lifestyle. Many people speculated that she had something to do with Amber's disappearance or that her lifestyle was directly related to the disappearance. We'll go into some of these theories a little bit later in the episode, but it's important to reiterate that police do not believe that Nicola and James are involved in Amber Lee's disappearance. Another theory that was thrown around often in the early days after the disappearance was that Amber Lee was hit by a car and the occupants freaked out and concealed her body to avoid getting in trouble. Again, police believe there is absolutely no basis for this theory and have investigated for signs of disturbances on the side of the road, of which they found none. It's important to note that every single person who was in Kingston on the day of the disappearance was spoken to and interviewed by police, including patrons of the hotel and people who attended the local store and mechanics. There is a problem with the theory that Amber Lee was taken by someone in Nicola and James's wider circle of associates, and that is that they only told one person they were leaving and where they were going, and that was the family friend who was looking after Harley for them. As well as the fact that nobody knew where they were going, according to Nicola, they had no intention of staying in Kingston until the window broke, so it is highly unlikely that anyone would have known they were there. After Nicola and James had exhausted all their search options, 
which was around three months after the disappearance, they moved to Christchurch, where life continued to fall apart. Along with Amber Lee's disappearance went any hope of a fresh start and turning life around. Nicola and James's relationship began to fail and drugs remained a prominent part of their lives. Nicola would later estimate that she spent three years following the disappearance, basically incoherent, strung out on morphine. Eventually, Nicola and James broke up and Nicola took her two remaining children, Harley and Danny, home to live with her parents. She was able to turn herself around for a time, working as a sheep shearer. She also met another man who she would end up marrying and having a third son with called Jacob. Sadly, after some time together, her new marriage fell apart too, and Nicola turned back to drugs, this time methamphetamine. She was heavily involved in the meth scene for many years. In 2007, Nicola was contacted by primetime TV show Sensing Murder, which was a popular TV show back in the 2000s. At the time, she felt like she really didn't have anywhere else to turn. The police were struggling to solve the case so she was happy to grab onto any bit of hope she could. Sensing Murder is a show in which psychics are asked to use their psychic powers to help provide evidence which might help police solve murder cases by communicating with the deceased victims. In each episode, the cases are reenacted by actors detailing what took place in the lead-up to the murders before the psychics start their readings. Producers of the show maintain that the psychics are not given any information about the case apart from a photo of the victim, which some psychics choose to keep face down. To this day, none of the episodes of Sensing Murder have actually taken the cases featured any further down the line to being solved, so there's no credible evidence that the readings are useful. Police generally dismiss the show's credibility, with Australian police saying of the show that they only deal in factual evidence, not psychic, and New Zealand police stating spiritual communications were not considered a credible foundation for investigation. Amberley's case was featured in Season 2, Episode 7, and it was called A Mother's Worst Nightmare. In this episode, Nicola Cruikshank is featured telling the story of Amberley's disappearance. She is very open about her drug-taking history. She was read for by two psychics, Calvin Cruikshank, who actually has no relation to her despite the the same last name, and Deb Webber. It would seem Calvin had a particularly strong connection with what he said was the spirit of Amber Lee and gave some information about what he believed had happened to the little girl. For those who are interested, this episode can be found on YouTube. It's obviously extremely controversial But this show had a large negative impact on Nicola's life, so it's important to her story. At the time that Amber Lee's case was featured, the show was produced by Ninox and David Bordock. Bordock stands by the process that the psychics went through to get information about the case and said that he himself was surprised how much information they were able to get. He emphasises that the show's main aim was to bring unsolved cases to the prime time for maximum exposure in the public arena. He also reiterates that no information is given to the psychics prior to the reading and that psychics aren't told where they're going to do the reading so they can't research beforehand. Calvin's reading was particularly distressing to Nicola. 
He told her that he believed there was foul play involved in Amber's disappearance and that the perpetrator was somebody known to Nicola and with her vendetta against her. He even stated, With all due respect to you, your past has hit you big time. Unfortunately, some nasty person who's been in your life has decided to seek revenge. Calvin may not have had bad intentions with those words, but Nicola really took this to heart and feeling even more that she was the one to blame for what had happened to her daughter. Kelvin gave her some information about the man who he believed to be the perpetrator, suggesting it was a tall, slim, dark-haired man in his 30s who liked to hunt and had an oil skin coat, and that the letter K was important. Kelvin told her he believed the man abducted Amber Lee in a four-wheel drive and put the oil skin coat over her before for strangling her or breaking her neck. You can only imagine how distressing this would have been for a mother whose daughter had gone missing 17 years before without a trace. After the show, when Nicola was thinking about men she knew at the time of the disappearance who matched up with what Kelvin had said, someone came to mind. Before we go further, it's important to reiterate that these names are in the public arena, but in no way does that mean the police believe they are guilty. There has never been enough evidence to charge anyone. So the name that came to Nicola's mind was Ken Barrett, who was the husband of one of her good friends, Lynn Walter. According to Nicola, Lynn and Ken had babysat Amber on many different occasions and she would have been comfortable to go with Ken if she saw him. All of the facts that Calvin had said matched up with Ken and police had never looked into him before. Nicola reportedly knew that her friend Lynn kept detailed journals and thought that there may be useful information in one of the journals about Ken's whereabouts the weekend that Amber Lee went missing. By this point, Ken and Lynn were separated. So initially, when Lynn looked through her diaries, she allegedly told Nicola that Ken had been away hunting the weekend that Amber Lee disappeared, which obviously would have allowed him the opportunity to be involved. But later she would deny that this happened and stated that Ken was actually home that weekend, at the same time cutting off all contact with Nicola. If this is true, it definitely draws attention to Ken. However, it's a he said, she said situation, so we can't be 100% sure what the truth is here. Ian Wishart, who was a prominent New Zealand crime writer named Barrett along with a few other others as suspects back in 2008, Barrett himself has spoken to both police and reporters and strongly denies that he had anything to do with Amber Lee's disappearance, even becoming emotional at the suggestion. He also denies that he was ever close with Nicola, stating that he actually banned her from his house due to drug paraphernalia. Ken Barrett feels as though the psychic set him up and reportedly told police that he was happy to do a polygraph at any time. He believes that Nicola knows more than she's letting on, which again police say they are confident is not the case. So both Nicola and Ken seem to point the finger at each other. Police officer Warwick states that Ken was investigated by police and privately and at this stage there is nothing to suggest he was involved. He also states that he doesn't believe sensing murder was helpful at all in this case, but was necessary for Nicola who was devastated by the lack of movement in the case. Police believe there are other people of interest who are more likely to have been involved than Ken Barrett. A name that frequently comes up in the case is Paul Gervins, 
And again, we have to reiterate, he has never been charged with anything here. So we are purely stating what is publicly available. Paul Gervens knew Nicola from when she was a very young girl, around 16, and amidst to sleeping with her, despite being old enough to be her father. He took on a bit of a father figure role to her eldest son, Harley, and was the family friend that they left him with when they left for their fresh start. There are reports that they actually turned over legal custody to him, but again, this is an unconfirmed rumour. There is a mixed report about Gervin's, with a number of locals naming him as a drug dealer and the one to supply drugs to Nicola, which he flat out denies. Either way, he was well known to Amber Lee and she would have happily gone to him. Another person of interest that has been named in the case was the son of a neighbour of Richard Debt in Kingston. 14-year-old Damien Angus was the son of local man Alistair Angus and had been at the Kingston barbecue that day that Amber Lee went missing. Some have said that he showed a special interest in Amber Lee that day, which is obviously unusual for a 14-year-old boy. He was interviewed three different times by police with his story changing a little each time. He lied about his whereabouts at the time Amber went missing and as a result, police looked at him very, very closely. His caravan was searched forensically and surveillance was placed on him. When he was spoken to by the media in more recent times, he stated that he believed that she had fallen into the lake and drowned, which police do not believe in this case. Again, while he remains a person of interest, he has never been charged with anything in relation to this case. It has now been 26 years without any answers for Amberley's family. Nicola stated in the podcast Chasing Ghost, which we recommend by the way, It's heartbreaking not having answers still, always wondering what went wrong that day. Is there anything I could have done to change that? While there is a memorial plaque for Amber Lee in Kingston, without her remains, there is nowhere for Nicola to go to visit her daughter. If you have any information about what happened to Amber Lee, please call Crime Stoppers New Zealand on 0800-555-111. You never know what little piece of information could break the case wide open. Our deepest thoughts go out to Amberlee's family who are left behind in the dark. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the True Crime Sisters podcast. Until next time, please stay safe.